Welcome to the Retzel Health Law Hotspot. Health Law Hotspot is a podcast for physicians and health professionals that covers the legal issues and trends that affect the healthcare industry. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Health Law Hotspot. I'm Erica Adler, shareholder and leader of the healthcare practice group at Retzel and Andrus. Today, I'm joined by Adam Hirsch, who's also a shareholder at Retzel and Andrus and is part of our commercial litigation and employment litigation group. He works with me a lot with my uh, physician and other healthcare type issues. In particular, he also works with me on non compete issues and disputes that arise. And today, He's going to give us a little bit of an update on what's been going on as it relates to non-competes. One of the questions I get asked almost every day or get informed of by others almost every day is that non-competes are not enforceable anymore. And that really is not a true statement. So hopefully Adam will be able to enlighten us on the current status of employment non-competes and other types of non-competes. And I turn it over to you, Adam. Thanks, Erica. It's it's nice to be here again. I know we we've had some conversations about non-competes in the past, and and I think we left our last last one by saying stay tuned. There's a lot of action on this issue, and that that has proved to be true. Uh, there's been a lot of action at the FTC, and I think what what prompted us to talk now is some recent activity uh, at the National Labor Relations Board, the N, the NLRB. And, and what happened was at the end of May of 23, the general counsel of the NLRB put out a memo, uh, which you know isn't isn't binding. It doesn't have force of law. It's not a court order, but it's it, it's not it's not a, an op-ed either. It's got it's got some weight behind it, and it's gonna gonna have some effects uh, that very strongly suggested that that a lot of, in a lot of contexts where businesses and, and employees believe that non-competes and restrictive covenants have a place and have a role and are, are enforceable, the NLRB is gonna come down against that. And that it's gonna be the NLRB's official position that in, in a lot of situations, uh, a non-compete in an employee's contract is an illegal impairment to organizing or collective bargaining activities on, on the part of labor and employees. Well, what does it really mean then, you know, for the average employee out there, and in particular, we're talking about healthcare here, so the doctor, the dentist, the et cetera, uh, should they assume that they don't have to comply with their non-compete or should employers worry that they can't enforce their non-compete? Uh, well, employers should definitely worry about that, but but that assumption is is, is not accurate, and, and there should never be an assumption that a term in a contract is not going to be binding and enforceable. Anything you read and sign in a contract, either as an employer or an employee, should be presumed to be binding and enforceable, and the idea that, oh, I saw a New York Times article that said that non-competes are no good. I can sign this and, and I'm going to be okay is, is, is not a good way to go about the world. And, and that, the, you know, the, the, on a day-to-day -day basis, which is, you know, what, what you and I deal with, which is we're, we're not here to make national labor policy. We have particular clients with particular contracts and, and there are particular issues. And the assumption should always be that whatever's in your contract is, is enforceable. Uh, but, but that's only the first part of what you asked. And the second part was, should employers be concerned? And, and that I would have to say yes. And we can talk about 
how concerned and to what degree and in what way uh, as, as we work through what the, uh, what the NLRB has been up to. Um, so there's different parts. When we say non-compete, we're really talking about a different, a, a group of provisions that might be in a contract. Uh, typically, uh, a non-compete, so to speak, would have different components. It might have a non-disclosure and confidentiality. It might have a non-solicitation of patients, staff, vendors, relationships, contracts, et cetera. It might have a, a non-disparagement type provision. It might have a geographical non-compete. So I guess one of the things I'm interested in, are we talking about all of these, some of these, or do we just not know? And, uh, you know, do we, you know, should employers be, you know, kind of strengthening certain of these because they're more likely to be enforced than others. And I don't know if that's too hard a question to answer or not. Well, let me, let me try and tease it apart because I, it's a good question to ask. And so the, the, the jargony term, and I know we, we try and stay away from jargon as best we can, but the jargony umbrella term for all these provisions are restrictive covenants. They are covenants as promises in a contract that are restrictive, that limit what the employee can and can't do. And so, the, 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 you, you hit on the major types. And, and so let me, let me come at this a couple of different ways. The, the NLRB memo was pretty specifically addressed to non-competes, which is a restrictive covenant aimed at the employee, essentially aimed at the employee's next job, right? And the, the non-solicitation provision is, is not, called out in the same way. Now, certainly a lot of the rationale behind uh, the, the NLRB's position on non-competes may also apply to non-solicits. And I would say that, you know, the, the Illinois law that went into effect uh, the 1st of January 2022 was addressed to both. But but here, here's where, where I'm going to land on this. And it's, this is sort of my, my theme, I hope, uh, for, for this discussion is that it really matters what the employer wants and what legitimate business interest the employer is trying to protect. And there are, you know, legitimate business interests that are protected only by a non-solicit, right? If you're a sales business or, or as we talk in the healthcare world, talking about, you know, a, a very narrow specialty with very high value patient lists and referral lists or something like that, uh, the, the non-solicit is gonna have a lot of value as opposed to more a more general practice in a, in a big city, it may not. And, and there are different business interests protected by one non-solicit versus a non-compete. And so uh, I guess my, my, my caution here is to, just don't lump them all together as you're drafting your contracts, as you're reviewing your contracts, you really need to ask yourself, do I need this? Why do I need this? What is my concern? What is the business interest that's going to be harmed by one versus the other or both together or, or, or what have you? But the, to, to, to come back to you know, the, the, the recent news appears aimed at only non-competes, but I would say the, the door's not closed and there's probably more to come. 
Okay. And is there a different way to think about this for your regular employees versus people who are owners of a business? Uh, so, for example, in many of our professional practices, we have associates and, you know, other non-clinical people, but then people might become owners. So doctor owners, dentist owners, who also have non-competes within their agreements. Uh, are those distinctive in how we think about them? Uh I mean, I don't want to give the lawyer answer, but I have to kind of give the lawyer answer, which is it depends. And most of the time, yeah, those distinctions will matter. And certainly, uh, and we've seen this in our practice, that that restrictive covenants, non-competes in sale business deals, right? If one practice buys another, there's an acquisition or a merger, there may often be a, a non-compete or non-solicit. If a, a retire, you know, somebody who's allegedly retiring is selling the practice, they may agree to not compete for so many years after. That's going to be looked at by courts differently and more, you know, favorably than a, a, an identical term in an employer-employee contract uh the reason the rationale for for whatever it's worth and you, you can buy it or not but the, the rationale is that you know it's a business deal at arm's length negotiated by people of relatively equal bargaining power with advice of counsel and the employer employee negotiation is is very oftentimes not that and there's a power disparity that the the, the legislatures and courts feel they need to to try and balance out with how they enforce those terms. So that's one. Two, the NLRB memo is based on section seven of the, the Labor Relations Act, and that expressly does not apply to certain types of workers, for example, independent contractors. And now it gets confusing because, you know, there, there's state-specific laws that will apply to independent contractors. And so there's, uh, it will matter as these new ideas and new federal guidance work their way through. It will matter, and again, I'm, I'm going to keep coming back to this, to the, the, the business interest that's at issue. And so for an owner, there may be you know, access to proprietary financial information or marketing materials or, or other information that uh, a regular W-2 employee wouldn't have access to. And so, you know, it's not unusual for, you know, if somebody becomes a shareholder in a professional corporation and a medical corporation, that that shareholder agreement will have these kind of restrictive covenants, you know, and certainly confidentiality is a big part of that. You know, you're, you're seeing more behind the curtain. So, so that comes with some responsibility to not then go walk across the street and use it against the the, the business you 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 become a part owner owner of. Okay, so as we go forward for the doctors, the dentists, the other professionals who may be listening to this, whether they're an employee or an employer, you know, what do they take away? Um, what I'm hearing you say is. Um, we're going to get more clarity going forward that some of this is very fact specific, but employers really need to be aware that this can impact their ability potentially down the road to be able to enforce a non-compete and employees shouldn't assume that they can just go do whatever they want because it doesn't mean that they have a totally non-enforceable non-compete. So that is what I've heard so far. Now, if, if, how do we expect there to be some action taken so that we get a little bit more guidance? Like what would be the next step for us to see how 
these types of proclamations or whatever or decisions are going to be enforced? Uh, it's, it's a good question, and, and there's going to be more than one way. So let's start with the, the NLRB. So the NLRB works uh, in, in primarily to uh, adjudicate uh, labor complaints. So that is not, they're not Congress. They're not the White House. They're not going to you know, pass a law that would then be enforced or promulgate a rule like the FTC would. They decide complaints. And so this memo is guidance that's going to be relevant to how those complaints are decided. And those complaints are brought by workers. And so, you know, it, it, it is, I think, the, the common perception is that, you know, they, they're, they're the adjudicator for union disputes, and that's largely true. But what this memo makes clear and, and, and what's clear for, for, you know, what, what people need to know is that that's not a limit on what they could do. So you're, how this is gonna work is that there's this new memo, it's gonna empower workers, it's gonna empower labor activists and, and interest groups. And we're gonna see complaints filed in, in the various NLRB regions all over the country challenging non-competes. And, and you know the, the NLRB's action has been largely in the context of severance agreements Right there, the the rationale or the the justification here is that it, it it affects the the ability of the worker to either agitate for better working conditions or or move to a more you know a better paying job, and so that that's been the the context here. And so you're going to see somebody who signs a severance agreement that has a non compete that decides they want to go work across the street for a competitor and who either through their own volition or through uh, you know, their, their personal network is gonna be told to go file complaints with the NLRB challenging their severance agreement. And then that's gonna get adjudicated and decided. And if this guidance, if this memo is followed, it stands a very good chance of being invalidated. And, and now look, that's not, it's not a Supreme Court case. It's not going to be binding precedent on the rest of us everywhere. But it, it matters. And, and you know, the, the, the one thing we all learned in law school is, you know, the, the laws built brick by brick, case by case. And, and that's what's going to happen. And, you know, it's been not the only avenue for this. Right. I mean, we've talked about the new laws in Illinois and those those get worked out through the, the civil court system in our state. There's been, again, action by the FTC that has not come down yet with its rule and, and you know if and when it does it's going to get sued immediately and <laughs> and that's probably not going to go into effect right away but this NLRB process is is like any other common law process it's built on cases and complaints and decisions and we're going to see that stuff start to, to work its way through it like like any other system you know legal system it's not speedy but but uh, stuff's going to move and we just got to wait and see what happens so now, of course, people watching this might be outside Illinois. So there are other states. So Adam's just referencing Illinois as an example, obviously, but the same rules apply. And I guess my question is for you, what about if, you know, the issue of consideration? So in many states, and Illinois would be an example of that, you know, when we're writing our contracts now, we're making sure we give some kind of consideration in exchange for 
uh, an agreement not to compete. So, you know, maybe it's 5,000, maybe it's 10,000. I don't know, it could be different amounts. Does that change at all the potential analysis? Or you may not even know the answer, but if there is consideration, could it be looked at more like the equal bargaining type of approach that we talked about for owners? I mean, is there an argument to be made that I didn't just enforce it, I actually paid them for it? Somebody's gonna try, but I don't think the NLRB right. much cares about that. I mean, that that and and to take, you know, a step back on your on your prior point, I mean, at least, you know, what we learned in law school was that contract law is state law. And so every state contract law is different. That includes the law on non-competes and, re and restrictive covenants. And there are some national policy issues here, but everybody needs to be aware that you know what, what you say about Illinois isn't going to be the same for you know across the border in Indiana and, and what have you. Uh, the consideration point has been very heavily litigated in Illinois, but that's not really what the, the NLRB is interested in here. They're they're interested, and in, and in, again, their rationale is that these contract terms. Uh, impinge or impair the worker's right to agitate for better working conditions or to to act in some sort of concerted way to to improve their their employment situation and and you know that that a, a practice is willing to throw somebody a five thousand dollar signing bonus isn't really going to matter one way or the other to what they are doing or what they're they're trying to do but again it's it's one of those where there's going to be inconsistency you know between state and federal there's going to be inconsistency between chicago and downstate illinois there's going to be inconsistency in the same courthouse depending on which judge you get assigned to right. just because the, these disputes are so fact specific anybody who tells you that they know with certainty exactly what the outcome is going to be based on you know a 10-minute intake is not really doing right. doing anybody any favors Right. And I guess in healthcare, one of the biggest distinctions is, you know, the difference between hospitals and small practices and the impact of, you know, enforcing a non-compete is so important in many cases to protect a small practice that really, you know, has an interest in, in keeping its patients and its business versus hospital systems that may have 50 mile non-competes. And I know a lot of doctors get very upset, as do I, about those kinds of non-competes. So for me, you know, it'll be really interesting, but I would like to see, you know, although I'm very pro-physician, obviously, I do think there is some merit to small practices being able to protect their business reasonably. And so I'll be really interested, you know, on behalf of our clients in seeing how that comes down. And like you said, you know, it's very possible that small practice could be viewed very differently from a large employer. So we don't know. I think that's absolutely right. And and even in the, the NLRB GC memo, there's mention of legitimate business interests and there may be situations where a non-compete is necessary. And, and certainly you can, you know, a lot of the, the, the small practices will have, you know, whether explicit or not, you know, exclusive or longstanding relationships with a particular hospital or a particular system. And then that kind of, that's the kind of relationship that, that you know, that practice may have a legitimate interest in protecting and, and therefore would be able to use a restrictive covenant to keep an ex-employee from having privileges of that particular hospital or working in, you know, signing a, a provider contract with that particular hospital. Uh, the, the other interesting angle, at least I've seen with the, the big systems, is a lot of 
what's going on here and you know the for for lawyers and litigators in particular there there's what the text says and what's really going on behind the curtain and a lot of this is i think competition between these big systems and and certainly for in-demand specialties and and there's certainly areas like anesthesiology where there's shortages and there, there's real competition for for these doctors that these these big systems are trying to use non-competes to X each other out and, and prevent poaching and prevent bidding wars and, and that sort of stuff. And, you know, is that a legitimate business interest having to overpay for an anesthesiologist? I, I think, I think that's a hard sell from the, the employer side, although maybe not. And, 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 you know, it depends again, it's all going to depend if it's, if it's uh, uh, somebody who's in year one of a five-year contract and they're in the, their prime and, and they're, they've got a nice salary, that's different from somebody who's at the end of their careers, at the end of a contract or is working year to year. I mean, the, the analysis may, it may not look consistent in the newspaper, but there, there at least will, will probably be some consistency in how those factors and how those things all, all interact and produce the outcomes. All right. So this is a pretty big, important topic. I think obviously we'll know a little bit more over time and maybe we'll have to do a follow up on this once some decisions uh, come down or somebody tries to take some action and we get a little bit more guidance or at least see how it comes out. Right. Um, we'll have a little bit more to talk about. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. And, and obviously, I mean, the the the, the you know, there's a, a presidential election in 2024 and depending on what happens, there could be a new general counsel at the NLRB who's going to basically take this memo and tear it up. And so it, it is, It is as always, particularly for, for employers, it's a stay tuned and pay attention. And, and certainly, uh, and I know I've said this, I think each time we've talked, this is not a cut and paste your last contract type practice. You really do need to consult with counsel, whether it's us or, or somebody else, to make tailor it one tailor to the employee but two to, to keep in current with the, the applicable laws and regs and and give yourself at least you know you, the presumption is it's enforceable but as an employer you want to give yourself the best chance that it actually will be enforceable if if push comes to shove great all right well thanks to adam hirsch for excellent advice do you have any final words before we sign off uh i uh, i don't think that i do just you know this is you know, stay tuned and 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 understand that that again, what you see in the paper is is not legal advice, and so it's maybe a place to get your interest peaked and to to pay attention, but uh, it's not it's not something that you can then translate into a contract firm one way or the other. Great advice. All right. Well, thanks everyone for joining us today. This has been the Health Law Hotspot. We hope you'll join us next time, and you can see more of our podcasts at RA Law. We'll see you next time. The Retzel Health Law Hotspot is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Retzel Health Law Hotspot does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Retzel Health Law Hotspot should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have.